What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. Joining me in the studio today have our co-host, Jonathan Hall. Hello, everybody. And we are missing Jillian today, but I will be performing the role of host. I'm Will Button. And we also have with us Nir Vaultman. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Will and Jonathan. Great being here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. So we're going to be talking about security today, right? Yeah, just a little bit. Let's call it cybersecurity, not the cybersecurity. Right? Yeah, we'll rank better in the buzzwords with that. So, <laughs> for our listeners, give us a little bit about your background to set the context of this conversation. Sure. I am actually the CEO and one of the three co-founders of uh, Arnica, which is a software supply chain security company. But uh, quickly about the previous endeavors, I was a, a VP security at Finastra, which is a quite big fintech company. Been running AppSec, DevSecOps, which is technically DevOps team that we're developing security automation, data security and, and security architecture. Previously, uh, CISO at Cabbage. And beforehand, I was uh, heading the AppSec at uh, NCR. I'm an open source contributor. Right on. Cool. So we were talking before we started recording about the challenges and, and ways to implement security application security. So get us started on that topic. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I've been working in smaller companies and bigger companies, and application security looks a bit different in in those areas. On one hand, if you look at, at bigger companies where, for example, I worked at NCR and, and, and Finastra, the two biggest challenges that I had were what is important and who do I talk with? Because at the end of the day, you can you can hook up a lot of security tools, all of the buzzwords of you know SAST and DAST and software composition analysis, SBOM, which is a thing now. You, you can definitely hook all of those up and, and eventually you will get results and you will get a ton of those results. And the question would be, how do I get what is important? And um, the way that I tackle that in the bigger companies was actually going to the finance folks and the strategy folks. And, you know, I spoke with them to understand either it's a revenue generating product or like maybe that's the top revenue generating product. Maybe it's something strategic that is driven by the, let's say, you know, CEO. So eventually it helped me to get a lot of the context to understand where should I put my efforts? There are sometimes deterministic ways uh, to get that. For example, you know, if you look at the code repository contributions, maybe a stale repository where you didn't make any contributions in the last uh, six or nine months, you'll probably guess they're not that important as the others. You can also look at, uh, you know, highly performing teams that, that contribute to pull requests. Right. So if you see that uh, there is a, a lot of chat around pull requests within repositories, yeah, it's probably active. But if it takes, you know, 20 days to respond to a pull request, maybe it's either not fast paced moving uh, team or maybe it's just not that important. So the context matters compared to the rest of the organization. So that's maybe a bit more deterministic. Yeah, for sure. You know, I I, I want to underscore that because I think that's like to paraphrase the meme, that's a pro gamer move right there, because you can easily go down this path of finding all these different things to work on. But the, the tactic that you use there of figuring out, does anyone care, just makes a huge difference in your career, not only in terms of like how you're 
peers and your coworkers and the people you report to see your performance, but also in your personal stress level, because it's going to be pretty stressful if you're putting in all this effort to solve all these problems, but nobody really cares if those problems are solved or not. Exactly. Which is why, I mean, I would say a few years ago, I took only the top approach, the top down, let's go strategically and figure out what is important. Thing is that based on quite a lot of conversations with peers, not everyone even know how to make that conversation, not because they're not wise enough to ask those questions. It's just because there aren't enough people that can provide those answers. Or maybe in smaller companies, you have you know a handful of products, and then you know that these five products are important. But then the the resources you have in a company are significantly lower. So maybe you the conversation drives from from what is important to what is the priority to actually get things done at all, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's very much different in this the size of the company. Exactly, and and um, and then when you are done with that piece, then the other challenge that I had is really figuring out who to talk with and how do you get that. I mean, you you start through one person, maybe you guess, um, you know, you you probably off the the organizational tree and start looking through. Oh, this is the product manager. This is the the person that is the top of the hierarchy and and runs that product, which is a way to do that. That's historically how I had to do that. But the people that actually fix whatever you find are not there. They are the least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how do you find the right people there? Because it's very hard practice to even build when you're when you're going through that uh, through that approach. I mean, again, there are deterministic ways to do that and there are less deterministic ways to do that. So for example, uh, what we did at Finastra we built something that is called a security champions program. In some cases, it's also called as a as a satellite program. And in that case, we just took each product and uh, we asked the engineering team to uh, to find us someone that is excited about security. And though, and it had to be an individual. It had to be an individual contributor. It couldn't be a manager. And once we yeah. got those, we knew that hey, this is a developer. That's someone that is excited about security. We can teach him something. And he'd be willing to actually learn by himself, him or her, right? And uh, and this is how we we built a program with about you know a hundred individuals in the company that were tied to a hundred products. Back oh, then, wow. that actually it's a bit more because some legacy products had smaller engineering teams. But that that was a, you know pretty straightforward. And then you start a conversation about how you build a community within the company to actually make that that program works. On the flip side. You can also go in a, a bit more technical approach. Think about it this way. GitHub and, and GitLab and, uh, and and others, they they have good controls on branch protection, right? You can you can look at those branch protections and actually, you know, identify who should approve pull requests, mm-hmm. right? The people that approve pull requests are the ones that have the most context in the product. Oh, uh, yeah, true, true. Right? So you can also go to those and identify uh, not only who are, let's say, like in GitHub, there is a feature called code owners. Not only mm-hmm. who is the owner of the code, and typically, again, the ones that are that approve the changes are architects, engineers, maybe principal engineers, other people that actually care about the product and care about the quality of the code. And security is just a subset of that quality. So there is a way to identify those owners in a more deterministic way without working too much and talking to too many people. Yeah, and getting passed around from person to person, continually striking out. Yeah, eventually, I mean, you you, you can't hit a 100% coverage on 
let's let's identify everyone who owns everything. But for example, you know, maybe you look at the behavior of the last uh, 90 days only. Maybe yeah. I want to see anyone that reviewed PRs in the last 90 days. These are, these are the most important folks, right? But what happens with repos that are not there? Right. They don't have contributions in the last 90 days. So, so obviously there will always be missing parts, but as long as you can go to the active ones and find in a good enough guess who are the ones that are active, I think you can start with a pretty good coverage, building that program to answer who to talk to. I think I held a role similar to what you're talking about. I was working at a pretty large company and they had, I think they called them ambassadors, security ambassadors. And honestly, I looked at that and I thought the way they did it, seemed like theater more than, than useful to me. And I wonder if you can talk about that. I'll, I'll try to describe what we did, or actually more like what we didn't do. And, and you can tell me how this is the wrong version of what you're describing. <laughs> okay. So I, I think monthly or at some cadence, I don't know if it was monthly or, or every six weeks or whatever, we would, we'd get together all the security ambassadors and we would like talk about security things. Maybe somebody give a presentation like, okay, here about password hashing or I, I don't know, whatever the thing was, right? And then we were just supposed to kind of like be aware in our problem domains of security things and bring them up or or make sure that the developers we worked with thought about security things. I don't know. My feeling was that this is incredibly ineffective because there was like no framework with, within which to, to decide if something was security related. And, it, and even if it was, how you should respond to it. Like it just kind of assumed that by giving you a label and having a monthly meeting about security, somehow through osmosis, our software is going to become more secure. I don't think that's what you're talking about, but maybe you can use that as a contrast for what you are talking about and, and what, what we should do. Yes, and I think th this is actually a good point. We tried that out as well. <laughs> so I'll give you my thoughts here. We, back in Finastro, what we did is that we uh, created a channel for all of the, um, as you call, ambassadors. And um, and we tried to make at least, you know, quarterly education session. The thing is that we uh, we set a poll on that channel and we asked, hey, what is the next thing you want to learn about? And and based on that, we got the, the interest from the team on what is the most interesting thing for them. In some cases, it was a generic topic, like, as you mentioned, uh, hashing passwords. And in other cases, it was, hey, I just want to learn from other teams what they're doing, because it's such a big company. When I was there, we were about 10,000 employees. So it's, it's such a big company that you don't know what others are working on. You don't know what practices they have, what problems they're trying to face uh, or trying to solve right now. And and that was also a, a subset of those of those calls. Now, did that make the software more secure? I don't know. I At the end of the day, you know, when you learn coding, what you actually need to learn is how to Google, right? Or how to Google those, how to Google those, right? Or, you or learn nowadays how to chat GPT. Yeah, or now you go to chat GPT build an e-commerce website for you, right? <laughs> but the idea is that you always need to figure out a way to put that in people's mind. It can be whatever cadence on a, on a session with everyone. It can be newsletters, and it can also be, hey, you have your tool, you have your results, let's work on those issues and help you fix those, right? So it can be as hands-on as possible. It can also be as Oh, I'll just grab a coffee or we'll grab all of us a beer and just have this conversation. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish I could say it's not successful, but I, the reality is I don't know. I just yeah. know that the bottom line is that when I started, we had 
quite big number of high severity vulnerabilities in our default branches. And when I left, we had we fixed about ninety seven percent of those. Oh, so so at least you had some measurement. That's something we didn't have when, yes. in my example. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we so had no baseline against which to measure success or failure. It was just we're going to try something and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, so we so we had data behind that, but thing is that. That was also a thing I, I kind of wrote at the beginning. I didn't have all of the data. So I, I wrote a, I don't know, code. If Python is a code or a script, but I wrote some Python code <laughs> that actually goes through all of our tools and grabs all of the information. So I actually managed to map between a product, which is a business context, and what is that scan that actually runs in a specific repo. And, and when I did that mapping, I started exposing that information on our Power BI. It was like as simple as that. And I grabbed the snapshot every day of how many vulnerabilities we had, what are the products and such. And I started building views. So I, I broke it down to initially lines of business that we had in the company. Then the general managers that saw that, and obviously they saw so many vulnerabilities, they started asking questions. Okay, so can I break that per product? So I built a view for their direct reports that led product teams. Now, at some point, the product teams wanted to know what to fix. They had their findings in the tools, but they wanted their individual contributors and security champions to log in into the Power BI and actually see what are their specific items. So we built a view for them. Think about multiple tabs in the same in the same dashboard, but just different details in each in each uh, dashboard. So if a GM could care about the top number, the developer would care about the give me the link where the vulnerability is. Right. Right. And then at some point, um, you know, we built even, you know, multiple like uh, metrics between which vulnerabilities exist and which teams and how do they do that and kind of help collaborate between the teams. We built SLAs since vulnerabilities were open until they were closed. We built a lot of that data into the same uh, dashboard. And up to the point where I left, we started having actually a conversation about how do we expose information to the CISO teams and to the internal audit teams? Because as you can imagine, financial services company, internal audits is always looking into into what we are doing and where we can improve. Well, you would hope so, so anyways. Of, <laughs> oh, come on. I'm trying to be gentle. <laughs> but technically, I just, I just wanted to, to give them something to stop wasting times on questions that I already have the answers for and I can present, right? So that's kind of kind of how I looked at that from a, you definitely need to, need to uh, push the data to the relevant uh, audience and you need to make it actionable. They need to, each audience need to know, needs to know what is the level of detail they can access to fix a problem. One interesting thing, by the way, in the general manager's dashboard, we actually had a like the how many total vulnerabilities you have, how big is the impact that you did since the last uh, meeting. I typically, I presented every other week to the general managers. And it was like a wall of shame of like the, the GM did the least progress was always on the top. And, uh, <laughs> and it ended up being like a competition. Unintentional, of course, but but it ended up very well because it's very hard to cut about many seven percent of, of all of the issues that you had yeah no to to make that kind of progress you have to have everyone involved in it and i think that's actually a cool way of doing it of creating a leaderboard because whether we like to admit it or not i think most of us are motivated by some level of competition exactly exactly so that's uh, kind of what we did and it's uh, as far as i know it's still maintained uh, in the company so it's uh, it's a uh, it's a good view that that makes sure that not only you got that sprint through 
mitigating risk, which that sprint was technically a bit over a year, but now you know that you can continue maintaining that state. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that, that also reminds me of a point, you know, and we also had that conversation, you know, right before we got into, into this, that coverage, the ability to see everything with a context and actually be able to ship the message to the right person is, is a very hard problem to solve. Right. You can have access to all scans. You can have access to all repos. You can do whatever you want. But but at the end of the day, when you're trying to be effective in fixing problems, it needs to be, you know, right there. It it needs to be in the in the right context, even even in your mind. So think about it this way. Let's say you just wrote a piece of code and it has a vulnerability in it, a new vulnerability that you just introduced. I like the concept that is that is something I, I just like to call uh, zero new high severity defects. Which means whatever I have in the backlog, you know, we'll just go and fix in our own pace as needed. But I want to prevent a situation where there is new high severity vulnerabilities in the system. And there are a few ways to do that. You can run certain scans on the IDE, right, on the developer side. But then with the different different IDEs and different versions of IDEs and the inability to push extensions, like what is the chances you'll get 100% coverage? Yeah, it seems pretty unlikely. Zero? Uh, <laughs> Zero-ish? Yeah. <laughs> Zero is a number. <laughs> Zero is a number. But then you can also put controls in something like a, a check, like a GitHub check or something that, that runs a, a quick scan. Mm-hmm. Well, there are caveats on that. Of course, it needs to be quick. Um, yeah. And the thing is that you never know whether the the developers that just pushed code from their IDE will go back to, let's say, wherever their GitHub and check whether the check passed. They will likely check it when you when they try to to create a pull request. Right. Right. Because that's typically from I mean they can do it from IDE today, but it's typically, you know, on the web, you get all of the details there. Right. You will have your automated tests, you'll have your security tests before before you, you can merge. And it's all great. But for example, one of the things that I've been struggling with in the past is is that a security scan can take a day, day and a half. Depends what is like a mono repo or thing or things like that. How do you handle that? You just open a PR and it falls because of security a day after. Yeah. And then you push what you think is a change to it and then wait another day. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I get that impression that scanning when you just start a pull request is good, but it may be too late in, in some cases. Right. Not too late in terms of, hey, you pose a risk, but maybe too late in the, in, in the fact that you can deliver code slower, or maybe it will frustrate the developer that it's not, like I worked on that, on that code in the last sprint, and now I opened the PR, I'm already working on something else, and now you bring me back that context. Why? Right. On the flip side, would you see that is very typical for uh, developers to commit code at the end of the day? It's like a save button. Mm-hmm. Right. And or multiple times a day. And and if you could, let's say, run a check the moment the developer pushes code, that would be more efficient. Right. So so this is pretty much where it's it's something that I kind of came up with, but I don't want it to be the thing that Nir came up with. I want it to be more of a uh, more of a term that is a concept of how you can do things better. And I, I just call it pipeline less security, like agent less security, serverless, pipeline less security. And the idea is that... I, I like that name because it, it really goes along with the theme I see a lot of startups that I work with called security-less security. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
there's a, there's also a good concept. Let's let's talk about blameless security. <laughs> that can also work. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. So the thing in pipeline less is that as opposed to if you, if you look at each of those areas of where you can integrate scans and maybe feedback loops, think about it. Maybe the first one, IDEs. So we know you're not going to have 100% coverage, right? But but also if you do have 100% coverage from you know within a, a magic way, you ran a script and everyone you know everyone have it on on their environment. Something like Git hooks that is very typical to have like uh, linters or anything like that that can check things like for, for you. Well, in that case, Git hooks can be bypassed. In that case, you're also getting to the point where you can't run too heavy scans, but things that that shouldn't be bypassed can be bypassed. Let me let me give an example. Maybe like uh, you have a uh, one of the open source secret scanning solutions, you know, like a Git leaks. You run that, you found secret, you want to bypass it. Why? For whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, maybe you just need to, you have the rush and you need to deliver uh, code at the end of the week and you just push it now because I don't have the time to integrate it with your vault. Right. Right. So this is like one problem that coverage and, and can be bypassed. If you go, let's say, to GitHub checks. On the GitHub checks, there are a few things. One, everyone can see your results. Right. Which in that case, also, let's say you did push a secret. Should everyone see that you just push a secret? <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe if it's a vulnerability, it's fine. If someone sees that, it can be on your feature branch. But a secret is a damn secret. It can be used somewhere else. Right. It's a different risk type. Or again, with checks, you may have a full coverage. You may not have a full coverage. It, it Again, it depends. But at the end of the day, how can we make sure the developer actually looks at the results? And right, the answer yeah. is, we can't, right? On the flip side, I'll just give you a hint about pipeline less. Let's say that you did identify something like that. You did identify a secret. Wouldn't that be more useful if you could just send a Slack message to the developer and say, hey, Will, you just pushed a secret. FYI, I'm going to revert your code right now. Oh, yeah. As simple That's as that. That's pretty slick. Uh, Self-promo, we do that at Arnica. Closing. (laughs) What's the the value of reverting a secret? Well, the thing is that the the challenge with secrets in in source code, with hard-coded secrets in source code, is that anyone that has access to that repo and actually cloned that repo have that secret in the Git history. Right, exactly. Right? So... So if you actually, what you can do in Git is, you know, Git is all about pointers, right? What you can do in Git is that you can take, let's say you just pushed and we have the head commit on that push. What you can do is you can say, you know what? From now on, that branch is not at that head. It's at the head of the pre-push state, which means that you don't have a way to get to that secret. So you technically deleted the secret. You you don't have a reference to it. But that'll, I mean, if anybody's, pulled down your latest master with the secret in it, then they're going to be... If it's in master, it's already state. too late. I'm, I'm talking about as early as you work on your feature branch. Okay, yeah, so, right, okay. I mean, historical, it's, sure. it's again, the same difference between uh, historical versus zero new defects. If it's historical, you need to rotate the key no matter what. Right, Actually, that was my thought. There is a matter. Let me, let me correct myself. Yeah. If you have a repo and you are the only one that has access to that repo, Maybe it's not a big thing. Although once you push it to GitHub, you don't you're not the only one with access anymore. <laughs> well it depends if it's private or not. Yeah. But yeah, I mean Well, I would say even if it's private, someone has access to it. It's not well, encrypted. If, if it you rests. are the only one, right? If you are the only one with access to it, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But my point is that GitHub has access to it. Someone someone there yes. has access yeah. to it. Well, if if you put your code on the public GitHub, you trust GitHub. 
Right. Which well, is <laughs> perhaps I, yes. <laughs> well, perhaps, perhaps you know they, they are investing. There's different levels of trust. <laughs> what, what Microsoft would never let me down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my, my expectations are low enough. They can't possibly. <laughs> uh, hopefully Microsoft's not the sponsor of this episode. <laughs> this episode brought to you by GitLab. Yeah. <laughs> so I, mean, I, I have a good friend who used to work at, I won't even say the name of the company. I don't think it's a secret, but uh, he worked at a big, a big well-known company and they accidentally pushed, discovered they had pushed secrets to a private Git repository. I don't know if it was hosted on GitHub or even their own internal Git thing, but they sort of did a roundtable internally and decided, what do we do? Like, we, we don't believe anybody has access to this. It's a private repo. But if if somehow this ever got known somewhere, this could be serious. So th- they decided to do a key rotation, which was a big deal. Because I don't remember what these keys were doing. Well, even in that case where they they had no evidence that their their keys had or could be leaked, so you know it, it's not a matter per se of do we trust GitHub or even our internal data team that's managing this. It's it's just you know so, sometimes you want to be extra cautious anyway. Correct. I mean I agree with you. You you need to be extra cautious. Uh, I think my my reference was mainly around the the altitude of the risk. Right? Exactly. Yeah. If only GitHub can access the secret, uh, maybe probability is a bit lower than you know the rest of their company has yeah. read access to the repo Definitely. and actually have it in the audit trail that they clone the repo. Right. Right. But I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to have that context that that tells you whether someone has access or at least has the key on their machines somehow. Right. So so that context matters. And therefore, based on the previous question, reverting that push, reverting that code push where you do have a secret, it's a piece of the solution. Because if you only revert and you don't provide a solution to the developers to actually push their code, you're you're kind of harming the, their development velocity, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's annoying. So the thing, at least that we came up with, is that we do that. It depends on policy, of course. But we, we actually revert your code. Uh, code to the pre-push state, but we also create a feature branch to the feature branch of the developer. And therefore, in the new feature branch that we created, we replay all of the commits, except where you have the secret where we just mask it. So there is no secret. Oh, wow. So so now there's no blame to anyone. You don't have any results in the checks. And the developer, in our case, the way that we came up with this is that we actually send a message to the developer on Slack and we say, hey, Will, you just pushed a secret. We created a new branch for you. Click here so you won't lose your changes. And that's it. And you're done. And we just merge the branches. And this is, by the way, one of our patents. But it's a very elegant solution to make sure the developers are not pissed by security controls that you, that you put in front of them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're you're identifying the problem, but giving them a path forward, which I think is one of the pitfalls that we've fallen into in the past is of falling down this pattern of, oh, this is a security violation. Here's a, a hard stop at this wall until you resolve it. Exactly. So you you can resolve it for them. It's and it's not in in hundred percent of the cases, but it's you know there, there are very few. I wouldn't call it low hanging fruits, but maybe. Um, Things that make sense to developers. Secrets yeah. make sense. Maybe, you know, uh, CVEs in your third-party libraries make sense to some extent. But if you just introduce a new, whatever, remote code execution vulnerability, it's a bit more difficult to fix. I mean, there are fixes, but you really need to think about what would be the right solution in your context, in your code. 
Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, so there's no one size fits all, but uh, but if you can at least make a little bit of their life easier, you're getting to the right place. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a pretty cool approach to it. And thanks. <laughs> and by the way, and this is only like the two two of the things that I mentioned. Right. I mentioned IDEs. I mentioned checks. What happens in pipelines? Well, a pipeline is too late. Right. A pipeline yeah. is already too late. If you detect a secret, it's too late. If you run vulnerability scans, again, you may have that feedback that just takes too long to get it back. So therefore, what you really want to do is to go to, I like to call it, a pipeline-less approach. As things change, as events coming in, you can react and feed the the developer with private messages instead of blaming it all over, right? The private message cracks me up. I, I love the approach. I think that's such a cool concept. But the like the inner troll in me is like, here's the private message. Respond within five minutes. We broadcast it to general. <laughs> uh, we can. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, how, how do you turn this into some sort of like a bounty system? Like fix this within five minutes or maybe better. Send me a hundred bucks or I'm going to tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Send me one Bitcoin. There you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's the uh, it's the ransomware bot. There you yes. go. <laughs> What's your revenue model? We exploit developers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we run ads in their chat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the developers who get three strikes, you know, we, we just, uh, we start a social media campaign against them so they'll never be hired anywhere. <laughs> I think we've got a new business model. Are, are things you should never do? <laughs> Adventures and Miss DevOps today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So going back to talking about the amount of time it takes on the pipeline scan. So do you advocate, if you implement the pipeline-less approach, do you advocate just ditching the scans altogether in the pipeline? Or do you have like a modified version of them for sanity? So I think as long as you can build a uh, security pipeline that is uh, parallel to the one that is related to DevOps, there are certain things you can do in security, um, but not all of it. So in pipeline less uh, examples of things that you can do is, as I mentioned, it's it's very simple static checks. It can be secret scans. It can be linters. It can be. It can also be as complex as identify whether the developer wrote anomalous code to that developer itself, like. Think about an account takeover. You can do you can do these things. What you can, I don't know if you can or cannot, but what I would question whether it can be done in a pipeline less is something like a dynamic scan. Let's say that you have a pipeline that runs CI tests. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, you do want that to be in the context of the CI test. Yeah. Right. So so as long as it's static and it's quick, that's the good fit for for pipeline less. Dynamic stuff or dynamic scans. It's something that I haven't wrapped my head around that yet. Right, yeah, because in that instance, you actually, many times you need the the compiled running version of the product in order to execute that. Exactly. And I mean, hypothetically, you can build by yourself, right? You can run a new pipeline that builds things by yourself, but you need to make sure, and this is where, you know, the, the devil's in the details, is you need to make sure you do, that you don't deploy twice. Yeah, and so there, there's a lot of details in how would you not do that? And how would you do that? Yes, yeah. It's an interesting problem to solve from a dynamic standpoint. But reality is that if if you look at, I just read one of the reports um, that, that Gartner uh, just wrote about the adoption of security tools. 
And, you know, static code analysis is, is the most common tool that the companies use. And that is something that you can technically take into a pipeline-less approach. You need certain capabilities with a tool like that. For example, you need the ability to scan individual files or only diffs instead of scanning the, you know, the entire project because you need quick feedback. Or maybe you should be able to execute a scan without a build because the build takes time. So, so there's a lot of considerations uh, that, that come into this, but, uh, but think about a product like, you know, maybe something like a SEMgrep. It's an open source. You can run your rules and, and identify, you know, vulnerabilities based on very basic grep rules. And that is a great example for something that can come up in a pipeline-less approach. Very nice. Same with the uh, third-party libraries. Let's say that you, every time that you push code and you change your package JSON file, run a scan on that and uh, a tool like uh, Trivi, and you'll find the vulnerabilities. Right, it's pretty much guaranteed if you change package.json, you're going to find new vulnerabilities. <laughs> uh, likely, likely. <laughs> it's job security <laughs> right there. <laughs> exactly. What, what are your thoughts about where security is typically integrated and, and whether there are other areas where it can be improved? I have one sort of general, I guess, thought about that. We have we have a lot of good tools that do scans, you know, scanning vulnerable libraries, secret detection, all these things are, are fairly easy to to detect and, and automate. And that's great. But I, I mean, I, I'm sure you'll agree that's not enough. You know, there, there's there's always security holes that can be implemented without, that, that, that a tool can't detect, or, or at least can't detect before we've thought about uh, how to detect them, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I, th- I still think that there's a, a big gap in in knowledge and awareness unfortunately it's it's one of those things that i don't think is taught well in in software development schools you know it's i mean i guess there's a, a branch of computer science that is all about security but it's not it's not the forefront of most people's educations and if you go to a, a software boot camp or something like that you know you, you go to a ruby boot camp or whatever you're, you're probably going to get almost nothing about that i mean you might learn that you should do you should pass hash, hash passwords and it's store credit cards encrypted or don't store them at all. But that's kind of the end of the security chapter in most of those lectures. <laughs> and people aren't thinking about things like, I mean, just some of the really common things I see frequently are people not considering sequential IDs as a, as a potential security risk, right? I mean, th- that's gotten some more attention in the last several years. You know, a lot of databases give you UUIDs now if you want to use them. And some people now abuse that. They think, oh, you have to use the UUID for everything now, which just kills performance <laughs> unnecessarily many times. So, you know, I see, you know, some of these things get some attention, but in general, I've had countless conversations with developers who've been doing development for five years or 10 years about some of these security concerns. They're like, oh, I never thought of that before. And I like, well, I believe you. I understand that. I'm not blaming you, but the, this is what security is. And I don't, I don't know the answer other than education. And I don't know how to educate billions of people, millions at least, with this stuff when we're still trying to teach them how to write unit tests. <laughs> oh, man. That too. <laughs> okay. now, I would agree with Jonathan. Like, I think education and, and even for myself, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but still consider myself largely uneducated in the, the world of security because you have like the static testing and the dynamic testing and and then there's all the different exploits like there's all these different attack vectors that you have to consider that I feel really confident about it if I remember what the acronym stands for but then my knowledge sort of cascades exponentially from there so it's definitely an education problem and I think like I think one thing that might help with that is you know, we all have pretty much standardized on Git as our repository. 
So like, it seems like there's a path forward in, in doing a template, you know, where you, when you type get new, that it stubs out some kind of security framework in there so that you at least have an idea of what you should be looking for. That's a good idea, actually. I mean, there, there are some guides that, that you can find about how to write secure code. Actually, there's plenty of those, but no one that opens up a new project on Git will say, you know what? That's the first thing I do after Git new. Yeah. Right? And, and context is hard on that too, because you can, you can search for it and find some stuff, but then it's like, wait, who is this person and what's their relevant experience? You know, do they, is this person I should really be trusting for security advice? Or is this someone who did a Google search on trending keywords and found that security was one of them and wrote an article that matched the SEO requirements? Yeah. You know what? Also, you found uh, my secret. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no, it's the voice of experience. That's how I got here. <laughs> so, so interestingly enough, interestingly enough, we are using uh, Copilot in the company. All of our developers absolutely love it. It saves time. It's a productivity tool for everyone. Challenge is that in in a few times that they, they tried to implement their code, you know, it, it takes it based on models. It's very much that you can do to build the right model, but then you can't really ensure that the model that you built to suggest that code is actually secure, right? You need different models for that. And yeah. in many cases, you know, they we get a code that the, the developers look at that and they say, oh, you know, this is, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like this is a secure way to do this. And it's really interesting that, you know, there are tools that actually help you to develop code. But if it would be amazing if those tools could also, while you write code, could just suggest you a secure way to do that. Yeah, that, that's great. Although I, I still think there are times when that's not, perhaps not possible, certainly not feasible. And, and I'll just give a simple example of, from, a, from a client I was working with uh, not long ago, logging. Logging is a huge security vulnerability in many cases, and you need to do it. And it's not obvious to a static analysis tool what fields should be masked or or encrypted or whatever. So you know when you're when you're logging something. I mean, so so in, in this particular case, we were logging sensitive customer data in many cases, or dumping entire REST requests. You know, and that's great for debugging. You know, you're trying to debug <laughs> something. Of course, you want to see the entire request. Oh, but that includes customer name and data and who knows what else, customer, you know, credit card numbers and, and you know, the, the, their blood type and their children's birthdays and everything. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so interestingly enough, I, I had the same problem in the past. And one of the things that we looked at was sending that through a sanitation service because developers, again, you know, they, they don't know what will hit there, right? It's just a logging, right? So we thought back then about the Google DLP that have that service that you can actually send a stream to it and it will return to you a, a sanitized uh, stream. And that is the thing that you would log. So that, that is kind of... I've seen, I've seen those, those tools. I, I don't think they're foolproof. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've yet to not. see one that is. You either are going to have... I mean, you, you probably have both false positives and false negatives in an, almost all cases. It, it's better than nothing, no doubt. I mean, I'd rather have it have that than than nothing as a as a customer of this company that might be logging my personal data. Correct. But it, it's it's. I mean, I don't think it's going to protect you legally if if you ever find yourself in legal trouble, and it's certainly not technically the, the ideal solution. Yeah, I, I don't know if it would protect you legally. I the reason why I'm thinking about whether it will or will not is because. At the end of the day, a breach is a breach, period. That's a fact. Yeah. On the flip side, uh, when you are being investigated, 
in a case like that. There's also a question of what did you actually implement to minimize that risk? Mm -hmm, And if you do have something that that you did implement to minimize that risk, and it's maybe just a mistake of a false positive, the outcome is different uh, than the one that you, you weren't careless enough or careful enough. Well, careless enough is a bad problem, but uh, careful, <laughs> careful enough about minimizing that risk. All right. Sure. So, so it's um, this is why I don't know how much would that impact from that standpoint. But if it's let's say you log something that is false positive every time, and you end up with uh, you know a million of uh, customer records in the log, and someone actually accessed it, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I'm really curious to see where all of that help developers write secure code goes. I. I yeah. I'm just I'm I'm really intrigued by uh, by initiatives that are driven by AI to help developers. Security is just one of them. Yeah, right. Awesome. Cool. Well, we are coming up on an hour here. Um, is there any other topics we've left uncovered? I don't know. We can talk about Bob Sponge and security. <laughs> cool, Jonathan. Any other questions? No, I don't, I don't think so. It's been a good talk. I, I, I guess I got to ask one more question, and I don't know if, if there's a good answer to this, but I, <laughs> I'm asking for a silver bullet almost. But how can a company, because you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I work with a lot of companies that don't have security or, or almost none. I, I tend to work with, with small companies, you know, they, they, and, and often their attitude is, by the time we're big enough to care about this, we'll have more resources and we'll have time to, to <laughs> which is kind of, I mean, I, I understand, but it's also foolish, right? What can small companies, especially early stage startups, what can they do that isn't going to drive them insane to start to improve their security? Where do you get started? So there's a challenge with the balance of, hey, let's use premium uh, tools versus the effort to actually integrate them and extract the results and actually act upon them. So so open source is great uh, for the reputation of the company that actually releases the open source. But smaller companies typically don't have the resources to actually run it at the at the need they they have, right? Which is, by the way, the reason why um, I'm a big believer in like what we do at Arnica. Um, you know, we have secret scanning and permission analysis and and anomaly detection and uh, scanning your vulnerabilities and code and SBOM and on essentially all of the basics that you need to have plus plus when you just kick off a company. And and thing is that I'm a big believer in visibility that must be free. If you want to see stuff, you don't need to pay for that. If you want to fix stuff, that's how you need to start investing your own resources into fixing. And and therefore, what, what we did, for example, with Arnica is that we said, you know what, hook Arnica to your GitHub, get it, get all of that visibility for free, your secrets, your permissions, and SBOM and static code analysis, all free for unlimited users forever. You want to start fixing stuff when it becomes a problem for you, then you'll be able to pay when it becomes a big problem because it's a good problem for you to have to actually pay for that. Right. And therefore, th- this is how I see that balance. So I'd say taking open source is great. If you don't have the resources to take an open source, take a product that has a valuable freemium, not necessarily Anika, like for any need that you have. Take any product that has a valuable freemium for unlimited time, preferably, if you can, and use that as much as you can. And as you grow and as you need to start automating, you will figure out to you will figure out to pay for a product that will help you to do that. Or even pay for an internal resource to take those inputs and develop automation by himself or herself. Mm-hmm. Great. That that's the way that I would probably tackle that. 
Awesome. Great answer. Thanks. Right on. So let's move on to picks. You got a pick for us this week, Jonathan? I do. I, I just started listening this morning on my morning walk to a new book, and I'm enjoying it so far. And I enjoy historical books, especially on, on uh, audiobook. They're, I like the narrative, but I, I don't, I feel like I'm wasting my time when I listen to fiction. I know that's the controversial view, but I, I feel like there's so much nonfiction I could be learning about. Uh, why would I waste my time listening to fiction when I could just watch that on TV and waste even more time? Right. Uh, so <laughs> I, I know it's not really logical, but anyway, I'm listening to uh, the book called George Marshall, Defender of the Republic by David L. Roll, R-O-L-L. And uh, as you can tell from the title, it's about George Marshall, who was a famous uh, general, and uh, or I guess he was a general. I haven't gotten that part of the, of the book yet. He's, he's still uh, <laughs> a <lieutenant> or something. <laughs> in the U.S. Army, he was instrumental in World Wars One and Two, and, and one other, the Korean War, maybe. So I was turned on to him, actually, while reading a, my pick from a few weeks ago, A World Without Email, by Cal Newport. And he talks about, he uses George Marshall as an example, a manager who doesn't use a manager's schedule. We've probably all heard the manager's schedule, maker's schedule dichotomy. And he uses George Marshall as an example of a manager who uses a maker's schedule. He spends a lot more time thinking about what he's doing than, than living by calendar. So I thought that's interesting. I want to read more about George Marshall. So that's why I'm reading the book. Um, so far, it seems good, entertaining. Yeah. So that's my pick for the week. Right on. Near, you got any picks for us this week? Yeah, I can I can give you a pick about a, an audiobook as well. I listen to audiobooks uh, typically when I run, jog in the morning. Uh, the, one of the, the books that actually changed a bit of my mindset is actually a business book. It's called uh, Good to Great. And it's it's a really corporate book. But given that I'm I'm a CEO, I, I wasn't a CEO in the past. I'm kind of trying to get into into places where I learn a bit more about leadership and maybe, you know, there are other areas that I can learn about. And uh, it's really interesting to see, you know, how companies convert from, you know, being whatever brand they were into whatever they are today. I'll give you an example of something that, that I saw in the book. Um, did you know that Walgreens had a chain of restaurants? No, I had no they idea. To, they used to do like... Exactly, uh, like, exactly. Like, they used to do like soda soda bars and stuff, right? Yeah, it's bars, restaurants. They they had uh, you know a few hundreds of those. They they weren't you know generating revenue as they wanted. And what the CEO had to do is really to make that hard decision: you either die or you cut your arm. Right? That's that's pretty much what you need to do. So he had to cut an arm, and they took a different strategy. They said, you know, let's double down on pharmacy. And what they did, they said, you know what, we'll put a pharmacy in a in the cross between multiple streets. So if you look at Walgreens, think about any branch that you were in. Most of them are in the cross of two streets, right? So they took a strategy that says, you know, we'll, we'll attract more people, we'll double down in the right way, because that, that is something that we see that is, that is working. And then, I mean, even in San Francisco, you can find, you know, a few branches in a radius of a mile, right? Yeah. And that's because you, you build the brand that is familiarized with something that clicks for everyone. Things that you did in the past, maybe last matter, you need to just separate from them. And when you do the things, you do them the best way you can, not only in the product and that experience, but in the brand that, that you build and in cross, cross between streets, everyone sees you. So that's kind of really interesting strategy that, uh, that was good to read about. Right on. Cool. So my pick for the week... I've actually picked this one before. I'm repicking it again. And Nir, I think you'll like it given what you were just talking about. It's a book from Jocko Willink, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. And 
if you're not familiar with Jocko, he's he was a commander in the Navy SEALs. And his book, this book on on leadership, strategy, and tactics is, has just been really cool and really insightful for me because of the different ways he gives you to think about and solve problems. And then if you're into the audiobook thing, he actually narrates the audiobook himself. And his voice is one of those voices that is just unquestioning. So whatever he says in the audiobook, you're like, oh, you damn right. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it right now. So it's been entertaining from that perspective. So he has my wife's voice? <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. And on that note, I think we've got ourselves an episode. <laughs> Way to wrap it up, Jonathan. <laughs> Always there to help. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, Nir, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation and I, it's actually been pretty insightful for me. I've got a whole page of notes here that I wrote down from our chat today. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, it was really a pleasure. I had fun. Thanks for coming on. All right, cool. And we will see everyone next week. Adios.